This is really a great place. I was just um, exploring the grounds a little bit earlier today, and just now I was doing some walking meditation. I don't know where it is. I am continually turned around here so far, but it was on the slope, downhill slope, where um, there's a bit of garden area, and it looks out towards uh, a vineyard across the road. And there are some uh, really nice walking paths there, and I was just struck by um, what a great place this is to do a retreat. I thought I'd like to just kind of move in. And um, and compared to a lot of places where I have practiced, this would be um, kind of a heaven realm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, we can take the conditions kind of for granted and we can take the fact that we have the the good fortune and the opportunity to, to spend time in places like that, this and time on retreat. We can kind of take that for granted. And, and I think um, that's something not to be taken for granted. And also I think the fact that, that any one of us is here and participating in a retreat like this and whatever our role might be, at least the way I look at it, it's a reflection of some very wholesome uh, actions that we have done at some point in the past, and the and that the the fruition of that, and and there's something um, I don't know to me that hopefully will give us a sense of um, a certain kind of appreciation and also of self-respect and reflecting in that way. Last night, Andrea introduced uh, a theme that we're holding at least to some extent for this week of the paramis, these 10 perfections, the paramitas, it's a Sanskrit word for that. And the way that we can see these qualities of mind as both a, a description of the, the path, the unfolding of our practice, and also as a description of the kind of the culmination or the fruition of our practice and the way that um, not only do we develop these qualities through uh, mindfulness, they naturally develop, naturally engaging with them and the way that um, they reflect the quality of the awakened mind itself. You could say that when they are fully developed and fully perfected, then um, then they represent sort of the natural response of, of that uh, awakened mind mind that is no longer under the sway of, or you could say directed by, ruled by the forces of, of greed and grasping, of aversion, resistance, and of confusion, of delusion. And I think seeing the path, seeing our practice in this way might be especially common in uh, some of the Buddhist countries in Asia, at least ones where I've spent time, Burma and Thailand. And very often my teachers would speak about practice in terms of the ripening of paramis, often reflect in this way. And I think in some ex to some extent this probably <laughs> reflects a view that is woven into uh, the culture there that takes a very broad view of practice and sees it as happening over lifetimes. And a relationship to the idea of, of rebirth, which permeates the cultures there. And this may or may not have any meaning for us, and it doesn't have to have any meaning for us. And whether or not it, it does, we can see this in terms of a single lifetime, a single day. You know, how many, how many different births 
do we experience in a single day, single period of meditation, births, lives, and deaths in a way. And we can go from heavenly realms of bliss and uh, ecstasy to realms of anguish and despair in just a few minutes <laughs> or within a single sitting period, period of meditation. And this ebb and flow, this it's, it's like a series of births and lives and deaths. And, and through this process, through this flow, there is this continual uh, cultivation of development of uh, these qualities of the paramis. Sometimes we meet people who, who seem to kind of have come into life with one or more of these qualities highly developed. They just seem to have an abundance of energy or be naturally very calm or a patient or have a lot of um, just kindness seems to flow out of them. It seems to be the way they are. My mother was a, an incredible example of this. Uh, something I didn't notice as a child. It was just my mom. But she had so much energy. It was kind of fantastic when I to reflect on it. You know, she was she was of a time and an age when when she was the one who took care of the house pretty much. That was her job. She did all of the cooking for the family. She was a great gardener. We had beautiful flower gardens. She grew a lot of vegetables there too. She was a great potter and uh, she studied that something she was interested in earlier and then when when she had time after you know the kids were a bit older she studied um, ceramics and she made pretty much all the dishes in the house she made them I still have a lot of them that I use now in my home and and then she became part of a cooperative crafts gallery where she worked there they all shared the, the running of that gallery she she made almost all of her own clothes she um, did all this volunteer work. She was always doing volunteer work in different ways, teaching and delivering meals to people who were homebound. And she raised four kids. She taught nursery school. When I was a, in nursery school, she was a teacher where I went to school. She was one of, I didn't go to her class. I went to a different one. And I, I mean, I could go on on time for her friends. Uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of an endless list of things that she seemed to just do with this natural kind of grace and it was just the way my mom was she wasn't hyper or you know wasn't some weird strained thing it's just just her her nature you could say and sometimes we we know people or meet people who 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 are like this in some way and there's um you know in my my teachers in india will say well she just has a lot of that parami that parami is really strong to the understanding that we're not all the same in this regard there is this variation, and they get developed and, and strengthened in different ways and at different times. And I think reflecting on the spiritual life, on our practice in terms of the paramis, has a very powerful um, uh, benefit in that it really expands the breadth, breadth of what we think of as practice. So we can get very focused on, on the meditation part of things and overlook a lot of other parts of, of what we're doing in this practice. And, and through this um, way of expanding the, the breadth of what we think of as practice, it also helps to cut through a lot of our tendencies to be uh, judging and assessing our practice and looking for evidence of progress a lot of the time and mentally comparing ourselves and projections on others and 
how we're how we're stacking up you know how we're doing am i doing it am i getting it you know what if everyone else is getting it and i'm not getting it there won't be any left for me to get i'll get it all however we you know we can speak about it in a silly way but well, but we do this a lot in our minds don't we you know, when we judge our experience, then we judge ourselves based on our perception of that experience, and it's not right, and I'm not doing it right. And and we overlook so much that we are developing just because we're willing to keep at it and begin again all the times that we have to do that over the course of a day. And that's our practice, isn't it? Is this willingness to begin again and again. That's that's the whole thing. If that's if we're not willing to do that, we're never going anywhere. We'll never get anywhere. Sometimes this path is spoken about. There's different sort of frameworks or models, and one of these is is uh, kind of an unfolding and a and a training in three arenas of uh, dana, sila, and bhavana. These Pali words. I'll explain. Uh, last night, Andrea spoke about dana and sila and Bhavana, actually all three of them in different ways. I don't know how, if she can't remember, she named them directly in with these words. But this is the training in dana of giving, sila in ethical conduct, and Bhavana is a word that means mental cultivation or mind development. And that's the whole arena of the meditation practices that we do, the different ones of those. And it's said that the Buddha taught this way, especially for lay people, for those who had not gone forth into homelessness, into the life of a nun or a monk. And um, it's interesting, I think, in, in the way that these teachings have come to the West, there's been a, we've kind of reversed the order, and we start with bhavana, and that's where the emphasis has been so much on the meditation and that, that side of things. And Donna and Sila, they're there, but they're, they're, we've kind of reversed the order a little bit, and there's a, we want to go straight to that. And you know, they get mentioned maybe at the beginning of retreats or at different times. and um, But they're often not held as practices in the same way as we might hold the meditation practices. And, um, you know, we chanted the precepts last night. Maybe that's, we sort of feel, okay, kind of did that. And let's go on to the real thing. As though it's kind of a, only a preliminary or foundational practice, something we get in place as a support for our meditation or an aid to it in some way. And I think any one of us, if we were to ask the question, we would all say that, of course, we see how attention to our conduct, this, uh, this focus on ethical conduct, on sila, is, is a really important and um, a crucial aspect and of our the foundation, the basis for our practice. I think we would all... Um, be able to make sense of that and, and have some agreement there. And, and there's the understanding in these teachings that any real progress on the path is not going to happen if this is not um, really established in us. And we can see it in a very direct way that a life that is oriented around harmony and non-harming, it leads to a mind that is more tranquil and at ease and is free of a lot of remorse and worry that can be there when we're acting in ways that do cause harm in the world. And that, that leads to uh, more tranquility, as I said. And, and um, this is a direct support, an obvious support. The mind settles down in a way that it won't if we're really caught up in worry and regret and remorse. That's obvious to us. And we could see in the same way how 
the practice of giving, and Andrea spoke to this last night, is a direct counter to the forces of, of uh, clinging and grasping in the mind. It's this direct practice of letting go. But I think to see them is as in some way as preliminary only is really um, is a narrow and limiting kind of view. And it doesn't begin to touch the their vast potential, their liberating potential in our lives and in our practice in the way that that in my experience, these practices of Donna and Sila, of giving and of ethical conduct, are woven into the fabric of the practice the whole way, and they're constantly being refined as, we, uh, as our practice deepens. There's a constant refinement of our understanding and relationship to the, these. And their potential power in our lives is vast. I was once... Um, giving a talk on this subject um, during the uh, a month-long retreat I was helping to teach at Spirit Rock uh, Center up in Marin County. And um, one of my colleagues, and uh, who's a dear friend of both of ours, been a teacher of ours as well, named Carol Wilson. Some of you may know her, have heard, heard her name. She was one of the teachers there also. And I, I um, said, can I ask you a question about about Donna and Sila as, as um, foundation practices. And um, so I have a quotation from Carol here. She let me put this quotation together and gave me permission to use it. And I said, so she said, Donna and Sila are not in any way merely preliminary practices. They are a way of living one's life, of purifying the mind stream. The more I practice, the more I see the subtlety of the way they inform my life. They are intrinsic to awakening. And if one were just to practice Donna and Sila with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, one would discover that they are in and of themselves liberation practices. It's all about purification. The pure mind realizes Nibbana. And this is really, that, that, that's a great quote, I think. <laughs> and it really sums up the way that I feel about these practices in a beautiful way. And the key in this, uh, what she said here, is this, if one were to practice them with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, that's the key there. If that's our intention, anything we do, if that's our, our, our orientation, is to really watch the mind and heart, we would discover that they are in and of themselves practices of liberation. Living an ethical life lifts us up. It uplifts the mind, heart. It has this, um, this, this is, it has this effect on us. It purifies and beautifies the mind and heart. And this is huge in the world and in our lives and in our practice. And our mind and heart can become our true friend and ally <coughs> in a way that um, it can be s really surprising. I know for myself, this has been the case. And often when I'm on a uh, retreat, you know, I have to say I've never really impressed myself as a, as a yogi, very, as a meditator in some ways. And, you know, one should be very careful of one's own assessment. But there are a lot of times when I have reflected on the fact that for a long time now I have had a very um, direct engagement with uh, 
the way I live in the world, with my conduct in the world. But I've really been exploring and engaging with these precepts that we took last night uh, for a long, long time. And um, this has informed my life dramatically. And there's times when I, I reflect on this and I, I, can s- I say to myself, I've said these exact words, you know, Greg, maybe you don't need to worry so much because I get kind of worried about my meditation <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> It's an old, uh, old deep habit in that regard for me. So tonight I want to, if I ever get to it, um, speak tonight. It's not even tonight. I'm used to giving these talks in the evening. So this afternoon I'm going to offer some reflections on the practice of giving. I'm going to single that part out of these paramis and hopefully offer some reflections on the way that if we engage with this in a wise way, with this intention to really watch the mind and heart, that the practice of giving is a practice of freedom. That it actually is that. There's one teaching where the Buddha recommended that one give with this thought in mind, that this is an an adornment for the mind and a support for the mind. I really love this, this short, to give with this idea that this is adorning my mind and supporting my mind. And it really does, I think of an adornment, something in this case, something that, that brings beauty, brings beauty to the mind, to the heart. And, and it does, it does beautify the mind, purify and beautify the mind. And it is a powerful su- for f- support for the mind and heart and it is um, directly tied to this path of liberation. And the, the translator and teacher Bhikkhu Bodhi did a lot of the great translations of the Buddha's, Buddhist texts. He said this about uh, the practice of giving. Giving has a particularly intimate connection to the entire movement of the Buddha's path. For the goal of the path is the destruction of greed, hate, and delusion. And the cultivation of generosity directly debilitates greed and hate while facilitating that pliancy of mind that allows for the eradication of delusion. I touched on some very uh, specific things there that it, it, when, we're, when we're practicing giving, the, the qualities of, of grasping and clinging and of resistance, um, they're, they're, uh, they're ameliorated, they're de- they're, uh, their power is uh, made less. It's hard for them to be there. They, it's hard for them to coexist while we're giving. And there is this way that um, the practice does uh, increase the flexibility, the pliancy, the openness of the mind and heart. When we, when we practice giving, our minds become less uh, tight and fixated. They become more spacious, more flexible. And this is, and relaxed. And this is a great aid for us in our practice as we all have seen and all will see. Giving can tend to erode our self-centered, self-cherishing habits of mind that are there at times through this direct connection with others, this cultivation of care and concern and interconnectedness. There's a a beautiful, very famous quotation where the Buddha was praising uh, the quality, the practice of, and the power of generosity. I think there's a and there's a lot of great things around the center here. There's a, a short version of this one somewhere I saw this morning. This is from a collection called the Itivutaka. He said, 
If beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not even eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive this gift. And, and quotations like this or versions of it, they, we can see them a lot. They get repeated so often that sometimes they can sound, uh, you know, like just a slogan or a cliche, and, and that can obscure the profundity of the words there. You know, and there's, there's maybe a certain kind of poetic beauty that we, that we feel when we hear this, and we might respond to it, but it's a powerful statement. If beings knew this, if they knew the power of this, they wouldn't even eat, even if it was their last bite, they would find a way to share that. Now, this doesn't mean that here at the center we're going to necessarily go outside and start spooning parts of our meals. That may or may not be a wise thing to do in this case. You know, we may be luring in uh, animals that it's best to leave them to their own devices. So we may not hold it so exactly literally. It's more the spirit that it's pointing to. But there's great power in that. If any, if people knew, as I know, they wouldn't pass up an opportunity to practice this. I've had a lot of opportunities over a num- almost 20 years now to travel and um, practice and live in some of the Buddhist countries in South and Southeast Asia and uh, a lot of times on pilgrimage uh, to the Buddhist sites in India. And I'll, I'll be telling some stories to n- today about uh, especially time in Burma. And I have to I feel like I need to put out a little disclaimer about my particular relationship to that country and the people there, which has uh, been over yeah, around 20, almost 20 years now. And, um, you know, it can sound like a very sort of one-sided picture. And, and greed, hatred, and delusion are alive and well in Burma, just as they are here. So I don't want it to sound like uh, some, some special place. But I have a relationship with that place and, that, um, and the people that um, is very deep and has touched my life in, in a very profound way. And so I speak from that perspective, and you need to know that when you hear these stories. Um, it's important because there are a lot of problems there and just as there are in other parts of the world. And I don't have a, um, an unreal uh, perspective in that regard. It's heartbreaking at times. But I think it was when I began spending extended periods in Burma especially that my appreciation for the practice of giving uh, began to really um, get strengthened and, and my, my sense of, of its potential um, especially, I think, when I was on the receiving end of it, as much as on the, the giving side, because there are the two sides of giving. There's giving and receiving. That's always part of that uh, relationship and that process. And, you know, there are abundant examples of generosity here in, in this country, in the West. Huge, huge outpourings of generosity here. And um, that's very real, and it does so much good. And we can, you know, we see this at times when there are, are natural disasters or things where um, support and help is needed. And, 
you know, I, I don't know what the statistics are, but the amount of money and support and time and energy that is offered uh, in this country is huge. It's huge every year. Relief efforts and all kinds of philanthropy and volunteerism and good deeds and foundations that support good work. I mean, it's just an endless list if you start to explore that. And it's, it's um, really big. And giving in these ways does a huge amount of good, but it also sometimes can reinforce uh, feelings of, of disconnection and separation on a certain, in a certain way. It, it can fall into um, this realm of philanthropy and good deeds and something good, something we should do to help those who are less fortunate. And it can tend to, to have this sense of they're over there and we, we, we give and it goes away and, it's, um, and others are held as, as sort of different, put in a different category. And in many cases, at least in a lot of the situations that I've spent time in, in Burma, for example, there's a way that the practice of giving is held in, in it's held differently and it's seen as a practice, as a liberation practice, as a support for uh, the, the liberation practices that the Buddha taught. And it's alive and woven into the culture in a, in a simple and direct and I think very beautiful way that we don't see it so often in quite that same way. And it fosters connection and counters these feelings of separation. And, it, and there's this way that it breeds uh, great joy and delight and a deep kind of uh, dignity in the giving and the receiving there. I'll say more about that over the rest of the course of the rest of the talk. There are, a in, there are all kinds of different teachings, and in one text there are different examples given of, of wise giving. And one of these, it's said that one would give with the clear understanding that generous actions will bring beneficial results in the future. And this understanding is really um, strong in, in Burma and Thailand and places like that, Buddhist countries. It speaks to this concept of, of merit, which is we don't really have so much in, in this country, um, but it's woven through the, uh, throughout the teachings it's spoken about. There's a word in this Pali language, punya, which is translated as merit. And um, it's really central to, to Buddhism, but it's kind of foreign here. I know uh, when I first encountered this concept was... Um, Really, uh, yeah, I think the first time I really heard about it was in 1995. And that year, I I had, the previous year, I'd been, um, spent most of the year in India on a pilgrimage and uh, practicing in different places there. And towards the end of that year, I spent some time at um, a monastery in England called Amravati. It's in the Thai forest tradition. And uh, I met a monk there named Ajahn Amaro, who many of, some of you, anyone know Ajahn Amaro or heard of him or met him? Yeah. He's now the abbot um, at, at that Amaravati monastery in um, England. But at that time, he was just, um, he had been coming to the Bay Area for a few years as um, in a process uh, of beginning to try and establish a monastery here in uh, Northern California. And there was a group uh, who would host him and he would come and take up residence for periods of time 
uh, kind of every year, sometimes with another monk or two. And I met him in England, and he was planning to come um, the next year. This was in 94. And the following year, he was going to come and spend what is called the Rains Retreat, which is a, a 12-week period, three lunar months, um, that corresponds to the rainy season in um, South Asia. <laughs> and during that time, the, um, the monks and nuns in that tradition make a determination to stay in one place and not wander about. And he wanted to spend that rains period in California and bring three other monks, because uh, with four of them you can do a certain kind of uh, uh, ritual chanting of what's called the patimoka, the recitation of the monks' rules, and on and on. Anyway, um, he... Um, talked to me about this, and I found myself volunteering to help um, make this thing happen that year. Um, one tends to say yes to things that Ajahn Amaro suggests might be a good idea. <laughs> At least I do. It's happened on a number of occasions <laughs> with him. So I helped to set up this place. Um, many of you know about the Abayagiri Monastery. This was further north in a place that uh, someone had uh, some property. It was called Bell Springs Hermitage. And we set up, I set up a place, um, did a lot of work over months of setting up places for the monks to stay and finishing out a kitchen and putting in um, a water supply and a lot of stuff so that we could live up there for this period and, and they could be in residence there. And then I stayed and took care of them along with others who came in and out and uh, cooked and made sure they had something to eat every day. And um, whatever, you know, the needs that might have come up helped make it happen. And um, that was in the, the s late summer and fall of 95. And it actually, during that time, was when the property uh, for Abayagiri, the first parcel of land, was offered. Um, and Ajahn Sumedho um, was visiting at that time as well. But during that time, various people said, oh, think of the merit. Think of the merit of all your good deeds here. And I, I had this really resistant response to it, I thought. I didn't, I thought it went, meant something that it didn't. I thought it, it was, they were implying that I was doing this because I was going to get some good goodness, that I was doing it for, for getting something rather than just as this, this offering of my time and energy. As though I were, you know, bulking up some celestial bank account or I didn't know what it meant, but I, I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with it the way that I heard it. It, it sounded like, um, it didn't sound good to me of my misunderstanding there, but it really has, it's this direct um, connection to the teachings on uh, cause and effect and really the, the core teaching on uh, karma that runs throughout what the Buddha taught. And the understanding that wholesome good actions, good things that we might do, generous actions, kind actions, actions of, uh, in meditation, that these have um, a power that informs not only the present moment, but extends into the future, that they have a power in the world and in our lives. And, and there's the understanding that any good thing that we do that's born of a wholesome intention um, has, has this power and informs our life in this way. And, um, and then we, it's as though we're planting seeds by good things we do. We're planting the seeds of our future happiness and the future happiness of others. And so it doesn't imply that we would do something 
in order to, to with this expectation that we would get something in return but with the understanding that that there are wholesome fruits beneficial positive fruits that arise from our good actions and we acknowledge and delight in this goodness and there's there's a way that this is done there's so much that that side of it is really rich in um in places like Burma, the, the delight that people have in the goodness that arises from good actions. It's so great to be around that, this acknowledgement that this is real and has a power in our lives in the world. There's another example of wise giving is um, one gives with the aim of enhancing one's efforts to awaken, to become enlightened. And I had a friend who... Um, had this, to her, very striking example uh, or pointing to this uh, teaching. It was um, at this retreat that um, I used to help run as a manager. Andrea helped manage it. Did you do that more than once? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andrea helped me. Um, and when I wasn't there to uh, run this retreat that happens at a place called the Chazwa Monastery. It's in Upper Burma in the Sagaing Hills near Mandalay. And the teacher there, the main teacher, um, was a very um, dear teacher of mine named Sayada Ulakana, who died a couple of years ago. And one of my friends had come to the retreat, and she was going to um, offer the sponsor the meal, which is a, one of the ways that um, places like that run is through uh, direct offering of, of either offering food or offering the cost of, of a meal. Um, and... And she, some Sayada saw that she was going to offer the meal, and he insisted that she had to um, bring to her into her mind in the offering of it that um, this would be um, that she was giving this with the aspiration to realize nibbana, to realize full awakening, and and she had never even considered that as a real possibility. He said, "No, you can't, you can't do it unless you you." Um, bring this to your mind. He said, you have to do it with that thought. And, um, and when you give things uh, at places like that, um, often the, the head monk or someone who's in charge of things, they'll have you repeat these words, uh, this phrase in Pali, idam me punyam magapala nyanasapa chayo hotu. It's similar to what we said last night. May this merit of mind uh, be the, the, the cause and condition for my realization of the path and its fruit. Um, and and that was very powerful for her to uh, open in that way and to make this offering with that uh, intention, that aspiration in her heart. I work with a couple of small aid projects in Burma um, that have grown over the years. And we mostly support small... um, small nunneries, nuns and the small nunneries that uh, they start. And through that, we're supporting schools and orphanages. And um, so, and the way we do the work is very hands-on. We go and visit places and we we offer the money very directly, uh, see what the need is. And it's not a big, it's a very small scale thing, but it's ongoing. And um, I'm just struck by the generosity of... um, the people in that country over and over. You know, we, if we offer some money to support one of these small nunneries, within a very short time, we'll realize that they're either taking in orphans or they're starting a school in a community where there aren't any schools or something like that. It, it's, it flows through. 
as soon as they have anything extra, they're giving it away in some way. It's so inspiring to spend time with um, in that in that field, in that flowing and uh, open field of giving, receiving, and giving. And I'm just struck, even sometimes the most poor, like in these cases, these people are really poor. But the generosity of heart is so um, strong there. And like here at um, Insight Retreat Center, in the meditation centers, um, places where you can go to practice, it's run entirely on dawn. It's so wonderful. I'm so inspired to see a place that's running the, this way. This is the only one I know of in this country that runs entirely on, well, the Goenka centers also run entirely on Donna. Um, but, you know, a lot of the places where I teach, they don't. They, the teachings are offered for free. That's true. But there are, are fees to um, come and go. There are scholarships and support for it, but there are fees that help cover uh, the running of the center. But here it's um, all on, on uh, donations, and the way we do it is so, it's so woven into things. It's I love to see that and be part of that. I spoke about this meal, Donna, and this this tradition of offering. And um, sometimes it's hard to, you want to offer a meal and they're all taken. <laughs> certain times of the year, you have to, might have to wait, wait months to get a spot, especially during certain times when a lot of people come uh, come to spend time in the monasteries. And at the Chaswa, the retreat that Andre and I helped with um, at different times, and I've had an association with it for a long, long time. Um, sometimes a local family, an extended family, or even a bunch of people from one small um, neighborhood or village would get together, and they might save up for a long time to be able to come and offer a meal. And um, they would often show up the, the day before and stay up all night cooking, and then they would offer the, the food and... Um, for those of us, like if you were there on retreat, we'd come in and there'd be a, they'd all be lined up there and we the food would be there and they would watch us eat. We'd have an audience, which is, you know, helps you stay mindful. <laughs> but also, you know, we're not used to having an audience. But they would just be so happy to see us receiving this very tangible support because they had such respect for people who would go all, come from some place that to them must, must would have seemed like a heaven realm to go all the way and to practice and to learn how to meditate. They would, they, it was just so um, moving to, to see this. Never, I never get through my notes on this kind of talk. <coughs> but I think it's nice, I like to tell stories because I think it illustrates things in a way that, um, yeah, it's more real. I, I mentioned last night, I think, that I had, spent some time uh, living as a as a monk, uh, bhikkhu actually. Monk is not, is actually a misnomer for, we use it a lot because people know kind of an idea of what a monk is, but um, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis in the Terra, in this, in this Buddhist tradition are, are what are called alms mendicants and they live on, on donations and in this uh, tradition they aren't allowed to hold food overnight they they don't eat after midday and they can't keep food so they're dependent on generosity every day for uh, this basic sustenance and you don't own anything when you're a Theravada Buddhist monk or nun you own a set of robes and a bowl that's 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 what you get <laughs> and 
and right livelihood for uh, a monk in in, a con in those places is to walk through a neighborhood and, and receive donations. And there's very strict rules. You can't ask for anything. You can't go up to a house. You can stand in the road and be noticed. And then if someone feels moved to put something in your bowl, they do. Now the monasteries are supported and so food comes there. And usually most of the time people go on a, on a round and they bring stuff back that's offered into the, the pool and then it gets shared and everybody uh, gets part of that. And then their food is often cooked there. Um, it was, so I went on, I would go on these alms round and there was one period of time for most of a year where I had made a determination that I would uh, eat only the food that was offered directly into my bowl. I would only eat once a day. Um, and that's, that's a practice that is, is um, so it's one of the renunciate kind of austerity, austere practices, uh, what's called a dutanga practice, where you live very, very simply that way. And, um, and I would do the same route every day. And it was so... Um, it was so moving and humbling to me to to participate in that system there. Um, there's, you know, the way the food was offered was really a wide variation. Sometimes people would, they'd notice you and they'd come out and they'd plop a spoon of rice in your bowl. And, and it was just kind of, okay, there's a monk, that's what you do. But a lot of the time it was offered with this real care. And I remember, um, in this sense that, you know, they were really, bring in their fullness of their presence to it. I remember there was one woman who lived in this tiny little bamboo shack and she would not only go down in the dirt and bow to me <laughs> every time I came by, but she offered these things and sometimes it was really a l small spoon of rice or, you know, once it was a tiny little dried cooked fish the size of a, you know, an aquarium tank um, guppy <laughs> or something. <laughs> Or one time she just gave me a flower. But she would do that with such um, care and um, presence. It was so moving. And you know, it would bring up a lot, like, you know, to feel worthy of receiving these things. And I had resources to fall back on, even as a monk who had, at that time, I'd given up. You know, I didn't have anything but my robes and bowl, but I had resources in terms of family and friends to fall back on that, that these people didn't have. It was a very poor village. And there was this connection to this lineage in my doing that. And there's a, uh, a line of Pali, I wanna say, it's um, part of the reflection on the qualities of the Sangha, especially the ordained, the Sangha of uh, nuns and monks who've kept this teaching alive. And that line is Anuttarang Punyaketam Lokasa, and it means um, they give occasion for great goodness to arise in the world. And uh, and my, one, you know, there's a lot of ways you might think of this, but in my, um, one way I thought about it at that time was this, um, it created this very direct um, practice of giving and receiving and all the richness of that. And one other story I I, I sometimes tell about this time when I was going on alms round and there was a young woman who would come uh, out to the gate as I came by on the on the path and, and offer something into my bowl. And uh, over time she became weak and, and uh, she was clearly not well and, and her family members would help her out and she would still offer 
Um, and then at a certain point, they would they they told me they made me come into the yard, which you can do if you're invited, and uh, so that I could come closer to the house because she didn't have the strength to come all the way out. And I, but she still was offering, and um, you know, finally there was one point where she w- she didn't have the strength to stand up, so she would offer from a chair, which. Um, I'm always surprised how um, emotional this is to tell the story. Normally, they, no one would ever offer alms from a seated, seating position, but um, so I would kneel down so that she could reach my bowl. And um, <coughs> and then she was dead. Uh, I, I, she wasn't there one day, and I heard that she had died. But until she just didn't have the strength at all, she still she wanted to do this offering for as long as she could, and it was so. Um, such an expression of, of faith and an understanding of the power of that goodness. Very moving to feel um, worthy of receiving um, in this case. And, and um, yeah, this, this being um, brought up a lot of exploration in terms of, of receiving, you know, and we can have unconscious attitudes about the way we receive gifts and, um, and almost dismiss or, or, it can almost be dismissive or, or create um, a separation at times, you know, and this kind of almost what I see as sort of a false humility of, oh, no, I don't need it or I don't deserve it. Um, but um, I don't know, through this practice and, and so many over years, I, I feel like I learned so much about uh, appreciating the, the goodness of the offering and providing that opportunity when that's my job, when I'm on this, when my side of things is to receive well. And um, and really delight in the j- the joy and the beauty and power of the giving, to hold that side of it um, with care and and um, and there's there's this deep kind of mutuality and re- and mutual dignity that arises in that kind of thing. And when I was receiving offerings in this way, they weren't offering to me. They were offering to the robes I was wearing and what that symbolized. And and that was really important for me to realize that that's what that was about. It was an expression of their faith and an expression of their uh, relationship to this practice of of giving and of supporting that that um, that lineage over time, supporting and keeping these teachings alive. It's said that the practice of giving brings happiness in three times. It brings happiness, delight to the mind when we think about offering. It brings happiness when we actually do that gesture and happiness when we reflect on uh, good deeds, on our generosity, our generous actions. So in these three times. And the Buddha recommended we frequently ponder and, and bring to mind our wholesome actions, to actually bring them to mind, not as a kind of ego trip or you know, look how good I am, uh, some kind of um, unwholesome pride, but um, really to balance our view and, and to um, acknowledge this, the goodness of it and the power and beauty of it in our lives. And this is, uh, I'll read this, um, this teaching from one of the suttas, the Mahanama Sutta, and the Buddha is speaking to a householder named Mahanama. And he says, furthermore, Mahanama, there's the case where you recollect your own generosity 
and say, it is a gain, it is a great gain for me that among people overcome with the stain of possessiveness. I living at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, open-handed and delighting in being generous and responsive to requests, delight in the distribution of alms and in giving. At any time, Mahanama, when a disciple of the Noble Ones is recollecting their generous actions and their mind is not overcome with greed and not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. The mind heads straight based on this generosity and when the mind is headed straight, a disciple of the Noble Ones gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of Dhamma, gains joy connected with Dhamma. In one who is joyful in this way, rapture arises. And in one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. In one whose body and mind are calm, they experience ease. And one at ease has an, <coughs> in one who is at ease, the mind becomes easily concentrated. Therefore, Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with your children. So he's telling him, bring it to mind all the time. <laughs> he didn't leave much out of there. I guess not when you're asleep, right? <laughs> and, and I think it's great for us because we're so often, uh, to actually do this intentionally, because so often we um, can see what isn't beautiful and our own skillful actions and ways that we feel like we don't measure up is glaringly obvious to us. But I think it's really healthy and um, wholesome to bring our good actions and reflect on um, these, these things like this because it really balances our view and it can really be bring a lot of delight and joy to the mind if we do it in the right way. All right, one more story. There was a monk that um, we used to go see in this area of where that, this retreat that I spoke about that Andrea and I have helped with, that we, uh, some friends of mine nicknamed him the Happy Sayadaw. And he died uh, about a year and a half ago at age 99. And um, I think he was the happiest being I've ever met. And he'd been in robes at the time of his death for about 87 years. And um, was he was the real deal. He had been a teacher to a lot of well-known teachers and had been um, really dedicated and, and highly realized being. And it was worth it to me to go all the way to, this, to the Sagaing Hills just to hang out with him for a little while. And he was, he was very light, but he was not a lightweight. And one time I was... Um, I don't know if you were there this year. I was helping managing and I was supposed to um, talk about the practice of giving at the end of the retreat. And uh, and my friends were going to go visit this this happy monk and um, and they said, you come, come with us. And I said, no, I want to think about what I'm going to say and kind of prepare some notes or something. And they said, no, you don't need to do that. Come with us. And I said, well, I want to ask the Sayada about about uh, the practice of giving. And so I said, Syed, I, I need to talk, uh, I want to talk about uh, giving and do you have any ideas or suggestions? And he was, um, 
sitting on, on a chair and there was a bowl of fruit that someone had left um, near him and he started picking up oranges and throwing them at me. <laughs> and he said, Donna, as he threw oranges, Donna, and he, like, he always was gesturing wildly. He said, everything is Donna. He said, everything around here is Donna. He said, without Donna, none of this would be here. Without Donna, none of us would be here. Nothing would be here. And that was directly true f for him and in that place because, you know, everything there was, was a direct gift. It didn't, it was like this place. It was all um, through that direct generosity of people giving the money to build things or coming and building it or offering the food and everything else. Everything there was that. But then I thought about for myself in my own uh, life, how much my life was um, a reflection of the kindness and generosity and support of others in so many ways. And I think all of us, if we think about that, would, would see um, the, the truth of that, the way that, um, that we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the generosity and support and kindness of others. So there's a way that this practice of giving um, cultivates a feeling of a kind of inner abundance that isn't based on any kind of objective criteria. That's just, um, you know, it, it has to do with an attitude of heart and this feeling that we have something that we can share. And there's all kinds of ways we can give. This is a, a short uh, line from a, someone named, named Steve Goodier. He said, we can give time, we can give our expertise, we can give our love. Or we can simply give a smile. What does that cost? The point is that none of us can ever route, run out of something worthwhile to offer, to give. And it's said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts, all other th offerings. And this is the gift that we offer through our practice. All of us offer this in the world. And we plant the seeds of understanding, of kindness, of wisdom in our own minds and heart. And through that, we plant those in the world. And this is one of the greatest things we can possibly offer, is this possibility of understanding and of liberation. So I'll stop uh, there and we can sit quietly for just a minute. <coughs>